Hello, and you're tuned in to another segment of Women Who Boss Up. This is where I have conversations with women about their journeys who rise above and become bosses, and they authentically love what they do. Now, my guest today is Kelly Berger. How are you, Kelly? I am doing so well today, Marcy. I want to thank you for having me on your show. I had an opportunity to listen to many of the other podcasts, and you've just had some stellar women. All of them are stellar and, and just wonderful women. And so thank you. I feel very honored to be here. Well, thank you for accepting my invitation, and thank you for tuning in and listening to the other podcasts. Now, Kelly is a New York native, and she's been playing the violin since age 10. You may have seen her in some acting roles like Sesame Street, ABC After School Special, commercials, or maybe a soap opera. She also teaches dance and she's, she's hosted some TV shows. And so today we're going to talk about your journey. So Kelly, tell our listeners, what was life like growing up for you? Life was really interesting. So my, um, my sister and I, we, we are first generation American. My parents are from a very small country in South America called Suriname. The majority of people have never even heard of Suriname, but it's a small country and it used to be a colony of, of Holland. So we grew up also speaking Dutch as well as Surinamese. And even though we were in America and we, we were living in Brooklyn, it was still very much kind of a Suriname culture that my parents had in the house from the way they were raising us to the food that we had and everything. And it was tough for them because we lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant at a time when it was called Do Die Bed-Stuy. I don't know if you've ever heard that I phrase. I haven't, no. But it is a real thing. And they did the best that they could to kind of raise us in a very challenging um, environment and keep their family intact, which they did. But it didn't prevent us from seeing some really hard things in life at a very young age. I remember, you know, being about five years old, we lived on Vernon Avenue at the time, you know, it's called the projects. And I distinctly remember maybe getting up to go to school and, and opening up the elevator and there's blood splattered in the elevator or there's flowers in the lobby because someone else was shot and murdered in the building. Um, one time we were driving down Broadway. Um, my dad was driving and right in front of us, the cab driver was shot um, and the, they took the cab. And, you know, it was it, a lot of that was definitely part of the reason why I've dealt with a lot of fear in my life, because when you experience that as a five-year-old, it really, it affects your, your view on life and it affects you emotionally. And it's just, it's a very traumatic thing to deal with, especially as a young girl. I can imagine not only dealing with all of that, but you say growing up, you were a heavy child. Yes, I was so... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen flowers in the attic, if you've ever, okay, so we were flowers <laughs> in the Brooklyn attic. But my parents, so to kind of make sure that they kept us safe, we weren't allowed to go out and play at all. And so part of the, the way they tried to make things better for us is my dad would come home and bring us all the sweets and cakes and ice cream that you could imagine. So, you know, we'd be stuck in the apartment the whole day, but then daddy's home and he brought cake and cookies and ice cream. And so we, we did that almost, he did it almost every day. And consequently, I started to gain a lot of weight. Now, even at that time, I was about seven years old and we were in dance lessons at, in Brooklyn. Um, we were at a dance place. And matter of fact, we performed and, at Lincoln Center, even at that, at that age, and Brooklyn Academy Hall of Music. But I was already struggling with my weight. 
And I was already, you know, looking at the other dancers around me as young as they were and seeing that my body wasn't quite measuring up to what everyone else's was. And I could feel at times when, you know, it was my turn to dance kind of, you know, you could feel like the kids were kind of making fun of me and everything. And, and that really also kind of affected my life in, in a major way. I, I think even now I deal with at times, you know, my body image, you know, I really struggle with that. You look fine. You're beautiful. So um, let's talk about your experience. You said the Lincoln Academy Performing Arts, you started at seven? Yes, yes. So I studied tap, ballet, modern dance, and I was in a very high level for my age. And so they would go throughout the school and decide some of the students that they were going to use to perform with the company. And I was chosen to do that. So it was a wonderful experience as a seven-year-old to be in Lincoln Center, to be at Brooklyn Academy Hall of Music, and to see what it's really like to be in a professional dance company. That's awesome and amazing at seven. And not only that, you began playing violin at 10. What prompted that? I don't know. I've always had an affinity towards classical music. I always liked it, even when I was seven years old, which is a little bizarre. Everybody was listening to the Jackson Five, you know, whatever, and I'm listening to Bach. <laughs> you know, there was something I really just enjoyed about it. Eventually, my parents were able to move out of Bedford Stuyvesant and we moved to Long Island, which was, you know, a suburb. And at the school, they came and they said, uh, Would you like to play an instrument? And I thought, well, what? And they said, I'm a string instrument. And I thought, oh, yes, I'd love to. Can I see what you have? And so they showed us some different instruments. I think I really wanted to play the cello, if I remember correctly, when I was 10. But they didn't have any more. So they said, would you like to play violin? And I thought, yes, I, I do want to play this. I remember also being the only African-American child in the program <laughs> because, you know, it was a predominantly white school. And, you know, a lot of times I can remember them thinking, oh, can she even really learn this well at the time? You know, because it was back in the 70s. But I decided I'm going to play this. I worked hard and I enjoyed it very much so that by the time I was in high school, I was offered to study at Manhattan School of Music in their college preparatory program. Okay, that's awesome. So what was that experience like? That was very interesting. Again, I remember being, I think, maybe one of two African-American string players that were there. And it was hard because, you know, I, where I was at my high school, you know, I was first violin, I was first chair, I was concert mistress. But in this environment, it was highly competitive. And it wasn't just playing in one orchestra. I was playing in three different orchestras. I had to take ear training, piano, music theory. And it was basically being at the school on Saturday from 8 a.m. until about 8 or 9 p.m. That's a long day. So it was a very long day. But at the same time, I really enjoyed doing what I was doing. And I felt very privileged to be there because it was, a, it was something that my parents really made a sacrifice in order for me to be there. And I didn't want to take that for granted. Awesome. That's amazing. So being one or two Black students in this performing arts school or Manhattan or Lincoln Center, did you face any racism? I did. At the time, though, that I really didn't, even though I faced it, that wasn't my focus. I think for me, it was more my internal dialogue that I struggled with. Do I belong here? Am I as good as, you know, the, the, the white children that get 
two lessons a week. And, you know, we can't afford to get two lessons a week. A lot of them had violins that were $10,000 already. And, you know, I had a, you know, barely a thousand dollar violin because that's all my parents could afford. So, I, you know, the training and the um, up to up until that point and I it wasn't equal. So it was my internal dialogue that I that I struggled with. I remember many times going for an audition because usually if you're joining an orchestra, you have to audition for the orchestra in order to get in. And then you have to audition for your placement in the orchestra. And I just remember every single time, you know, feeling like, am I good enough? You know, I can't believe I'm here. Am I good enough? And sometimes the judges, I I could feel a little bit of the racism where it was like, okay, well, do the best you can, you know, where it was like, and then I sometimes it would make me a little intimidated. And sometimes I'm like, let me pick up this violin, show you, show y'all what I can do. You know, I was I was very successful at it, and I played in several places in in New York City and in the tri-state area. And um, it was it was a wonderful experience, and I love it. And to this day, I I still play. Okay, I was gonna ask that. Okay, so you mentioned playing the violin and piano, and you had a dream way back then of doing the cello. And currently you're living up to that and you are taking cello lessons. I am. I've always wanted to play. There's something about the sound that I, I really love. And I turned 50 and I decided I am going to learn how to play this instrument. So I am taking cello lessons. I am loving playing cello as well. But I still continue the violin. Matter of fact, my daughter recently was married in Ireland. And so when I went to Ireland, I was playing there, played in a couple of pubs, <laughs> played some Irish jigs, and and uh, and it was a lot of fun. Nice. So we talked about you playing violin and instruments, and um, you also had the opportunity to go to the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. Let's talk about that experience. Well, so let's. It kind of links to the violin. I remember thinking. My parents were like, listen, you know, you, you're either going to go to school or get a job. You have to do something. You graduated high school. And I didn't feel like I was ready to go to Manhattan School of Music as, as far as going to college yet. So I remember, you know, I'm just going to kind of take my violin and play in the city. You could do it back then. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know was, things were a lot different. And I was playing one day and an agent came up to me and gave me her card. And she said, you know what? I'd like to send you for an audition, I think you'd be really good at it. And I kind of thought, um, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm from Bed-Stuy, you're not gonna play me, you know, don't come hand me if everybody says they're an agent. But I did call her and, and it was legitimate. So I said, listen, I'd, I'd like to give it a try. I've never taken acting before. I play violin, but I've never done this. And she said, no worry, I think you have a good look. So she sent me for my first audition. And my first audition, I ended up doing a screenplay. Now I didn't get, not a screenplay, a screen test. So I didn't get the part, but I will tell you the show was the television series Fame and Janet Jackson ended up getting the part. So I kind of felt, wow, I was in good company and I enjoyed the process so much that I decided I wanted to stay in, in that business. So I started, she started sending me for television commercials. And I think on my second audition, I got my, my first national television commercial, which was Hallmark Cards. And I flew out to California to film that. And then after that, they just were rolling in. I mean, I did Pepsi, McDonald's, AT&T, Oh, um, Colgate. I, I did, I think, overall about 75 national and regional commercials. 
And so it was her suggestion that I go back to dance as well. She said, you know, we're, we're sending you for a lot of auditions and some of them will require you to sing and dance. And she said, I know you mentioned you studied dance when you were young. I think you need to go back and, and take dance lessons. And so I thought, sure, I'll do that. And, and so I went and I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Alvin Ailey. And I went there. And of course, um, I was just starting to take classes which you know, anyone can go and take classes. And eventually they came up to me and said, you know, you have a lot of promise and we'd like to invite you to join our certificate program, which is a two year program that you study. And you are there from probably about eight until five or six and you're taking five or six dance classes a day. And I was doing that for a time, but then eventually um, the acting and being at Alvin Ailey for that amount of time, it just wasn't working because my acting career was taking off. I was doing a couple of those ABC after-school specials for those of you back in the day who remember that. I did Sesame Street, I did Another World, I did some what they call under fives at, um, for all my children. And I really, I really loved acting. I loved dance as well, but um, I just I just loved acting. So that's eventually I did that and, and uh, Again, that was also, you know, a really great experience for me. I can tell, yeah. So back to the Alvin Ailey Agency. Now, you said the certification process. You said it was intense. Let's talk about it. It is very intense. And again, you know, there was that internal dialogue with the child that never felt comfortable in her body. And the dance world is, you know, your body is, is your instrument. So it's very important. And I remember being about, I'm 5'2", I think I was about hundred and. 16 pounds when I started and the, everything was you need to lose more weight you need to lose more weight during that time during that time was slim yeah right and and you know and I also don't have a dancer's body I have a dancer's heart <laughs> but not the body my limbs aren't long I'm short um, I tend to you know I'm a little I would say like stocking comparison to some when you look at, at very slender dancers. So I didn't have that going for me, but I did have the heart and I did love to learn the technique of dance and how to communicate to people through dance and, and through your body and also how to express yourself to yourself, connecting with what's going on authentically in your heart and what does that mean to express it through your through your body and then communicate that in a way that other people can feel the same thing that you're feeling okay very good now also you were the first african-american valedictorian at nassau community college congratulations on Thank that you. what was that experience like being the first african-american valedictorian well eventually um, i continued in you know with the acting and dancing and then about age 22 i uh, became pregnant and i thought you know what i am going to have this child i'm going to keep this child and i did and after i had her it was very hard to go back into the business because for those of you that don't know, my days were I would leave Long Island, go into Manhattan, and I would be there all day. And if I had an audition, um, then I'd have to stay all day because you might get a call back. So you might get there at 10 o'clock. You're going to take your dance class. You're taking your acting class. You're going to take your singing lessons. You can't go home yet. You know, oh, you have a call back. It's not till six o'clock. And so you're in the city the entire day trying to figure out what to do. And I knew that once I had her, that that was not going to be an option for me, at least at that point when she was young. So I decided that I was going to go back to school. 
Now, I will say that I absolutely hated high school. <laughs> and I was not one of the popular people. I wasn't one, you know, I was kind of, you know, the one that I felt awkward. I also, again, was uh, one of the only African-American students that was studying in, in the orchestra and playing violins. I was kind of teased. It was like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you playing that instrument? And I also felt that when I would go to class. So I, I will just be honest, I would cut class and I would go to the music wing <laughs> and I would practice for, I mean, I would practice for hours and everything. So I did graduate high school, but I barely made it. So now the thought of going to college, I was like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna go to college? I barely made it out of high school. You know, can I really do this? But I also knew that if I wanted to give my child a life that I desired for her, that that was going to have to be a next step for me. But because of her, because I had her, it gave me such a motivation so that when I went to Nassau Community College, I was, was so determined that I just was getting A's in every class. And I will tell you that in order to do that, I actually was on welfare. So I, you know, had to get on social services to, you know, because it's hard to have a child and work full time and pay for daycare. So I remember I went to church and one of the mothers in the church said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go down to social services. You're going to get on social services. You're going to get your life together. And then you'll get off when you get your life together. But that's what you're going to do. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that. So I did. And I at that time, there was a special program for single mothers that were in, in my situation. And they let you go to school. They paid two years of your school. It was free books, free transportation. They gave you lunch money. And they also paid for my daughter to go to the daycare on campus. So it was almost like God just put all it, just all in place for me. All I had to do was step into it. And so I did. And I thought, I'm going to make the most of this situation. And so I got an A in every single class. You know, I remember in high school, do you remember when you were in biology and you had to uh, dissect the, the baby pig? Yeah. I refused to do it. I'm not, I'm not doing that. They were like, you're going to fail the class, fail me. I'm not dissecting the pig. By the time I went to college, I was like, give me the pig. <laughs> Let me dissect that pig because I need to get an A in this class because I have a reason that's, that's bigger than, you know, me not wanting to do something. So um, eventually I did become the first African-American valedictorian. And then I got a full scholarship to Hofstra University. And then you continue your studies there. So what did you study at Hofstra? So at Hofstra, I decided that, you know, maybe I'll go into communications. And so I tried that and it wasn't exactly filling me. It wasn't like something that I thought, oh, I really love doing this. And I remember I hadn't played violin in so long, but that was one of the electives. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to dust off the violin and, and I'll start playing that again. And, and it's just an elective. And so I took my violin out first semester there. And, you know, you have to do what they call a jury at the end of the semester if you play an instrument where you, you have to sit in front of probably about four or five professors and you have to play whatever concerto or sonata that they gave you. And they judge you and that's your grade. And after I played, now mind you, I probably picked up the violin maybe five months into playing again. And they came up to me afterwards and they said, you're not a music major? And I said, no, no, I'm not. And they said, you are really good. And we, we will give you another scholarship 
if you think about switching over and everything. And so I said, you know what? I'm loving this. I am going to do it. So I became a music major. I did. It was a really good experience because I got to do a lot of recitals. I won a concerto competition where I had to play a solo with an orchestra, which is, I mean, it's just mind blowing to me that I was in that position, but I loved it. And it was something I've always wanted to do in my life was to, you know, be the soloist in, in the orchestra and wear a beautiful gown. And, and um, so it was really great. And but when I graduated again, I had a lot of scholarship money and I was really in a position at that point to give my daughter. And at that, by then I had two other kids as well. I got married, had two kids. And so I was able to give them the life that, that I so desired for them. That's wonderful. Now let's talk about your move from New York to South Bend. You said God led you to come to this area. Let's talk about that. He truly did. I loved my life in New York. I was teaching violin. I was doing gigs on the weekend. I, like, as I mentioned, I married had two other children, great children. My marriage wasn't so great though, but I did have a sense of what am I going to do now? I graduated, I, I am gigging, I am teaching lessons, but I had kind of an itch and a desire to go back to television. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to sign, I'm going to go and get a manager again, and I'm going to go back into the business. So I got a manager it was uh, the, the managers, it's called Don Buckwald Management. And just to tell you the kind of management company they are, that was Regis Philbin's, one of his, one of his man, the company that uh, managed him. But they, so they signed me and I was going out for auditions. Manager had my three kids at home and I was going there and I remember leaving the city, going back to Long Island and I thought, God, this is not for me anymore. This is not fulfilling me. And I don't know what it is, but I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. And so I kind of just told them, listen, I need a little break for a minute. And I just wanted to kind of go before God and say, what's my next step? Like, what, what do you have for me? And I really did feel that it was, you know, reach out to some Christian television stations. Now in New York, I never even knew that was a thing because we, we never really I don't remember any of Christian television stations in New York, but I thought, okay, I'll reach out to some. So I sent a cover letter and a resume to a couple of stations, and this one reached out to me, and it's called Lacey Broadcasting, and it's in South Bend, Indiana. And they said, hey, we'd love for you to come and be a guest on our show. Would you, would you mind? We'll fly you out. We'll put you up in a hotel, but, but we'd like to see about having you as a host, but why don't you come as a guest first? So I was very excited. And I remember I went first, oh, let's see broadcasting. And I looked it up on my computer and then a picture came up and I thought, oh, they ain't going to hire me. <laughs> I, I don't even know why I'm going out there, Lord. They are not going to hire me. It's not anything negative on let's see broadcasting at all. They, they were wonderful, but I didn't look like the other hosts. You know, they, they were all, you know, again, nothing, I'm not being disparaging, but they were white. They were very conservative in their appearance and everything. And I thought, you know, okay, God, you, you're telling me go. So I went out there. Um, I was a guest on the show and I came back home. And within a week or so, they said, we'd like for you to come out and co-host for three days. And let's see if, you know, this will work out. So I went back out and I'm amazed, honestly, Marcy, at how God put all these pieces together. Because I remember thinking, look, God, if you want me to go, I really don't want to go. 
I have no desire to leave New York and my friends and my family. But if that is what you are asking of me, I will do it. But I said, but you need to let me know. Like, this is you. And I just remember going out there for three days. And there were a couple of things. There were some scriptures that I was reading. I had one of the scriptures on my refrigerator, which, you know, many of us know, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you. And there were also some songs that I felt that really were kind of speaking to my heart at that time. Well, when I went to co-host on the Harvest Show at Lissy Broadcasting, God checked every single box. The songs that I was listening to check, um, you know, the, the scripture. I went to a house to look and just kind of see, well, what kind of home would we move into? And the same scripture that I had on my refrigerator was a big picture in their house. You know, we didn't buy that one, but it was another box checked for me. And then, you know, I was reading a scripture before going, and it was about a shekel. And I thought, what is a shekel? Okay, God, I'm reading it. I don't know what a shekel is, but whatever. Okay, I read the scripture for the day. And so when I get there, before I'm leaving to Lissy Broadcasting, they said to me, listen, we don't know if we're going to go with you. Thank you for coming. But there's two of you that were considering to bring in as a co-host. And he said, but I just want to give you this because we go to Israel three times a year, and I just want you to have this. And so he puts this coin in my hand. And I'm thinking, what is this? I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, thank you. But what is it? And he said, well, it's a shekel. And so I thought, oh my goodness, God, you checked another box. And basically I kind of felt, now they didn't tell me I had the job, but basically when I went home, I felt like God said, listen, you better, why don't you start packing? And they called me in a few days and we were out in South Bend, Indiana within six weeks, packed up three kids, one dog (laughs) and headed out here. Now, I remember you saying, as you headed this way, you look like at 20 houses. Like, let's yes. talk about that experience. So before we, we moved out here, we, we had one Saturday to come and we drove out here and we did. We looked at 20 houses in one day and we knew that we had to pick a house. And so we, we were asking, okay, so we asked the real estate agent, what's the best house? Like, what's the best neighborhood? What, what's the best school system? And they directed us to the Penn District, Penn Harris Madison. Yeah, okay, you know, that's fine. What's a good neighborhood? Oh, Mishawaka. So we moved there. You know, we did, we found a house. We liked the house, put it down, you know, everything went through. And then we moved there. And it wasn't until I moved there that I realized that right across the street was Osceola, which was fine. Okay, it's Osceola. I don't have a problem with Osceola. But then I realized that they actually have a Ku Klux Klan that was still operating at the time, you know, because before we moved, I went home and we already bought the house. And I thought, oh, I need to find a good church home. Let me research a good church home in South Bend, Mishawaka, Indiana, whatever. And everything's popping up and I'm looking, okay, you know, family church. Okay, that sounds good. Church of the Holy Trinity, all these churches. And then all of a sudden there's the church of the Ku Klux Klan. And I thought, this can't be real. God, you are sending me to a place where they have a church of the Ku Klux Klan. What kind of God are you? And then I find out when I moved there that where the Ku Klux Klan is, is right across the street from where I bought the house. Really. So Osceola, I I was in Mishawaka, but Osceola was right next door. And I just, I mean, it was just, I literally just wanted to cry, you know, in front of my kids. But I just thought, God, look, I, I, I do not, I will say yes to you, but I don't want my kids and my family to suffer for it. 
but moved we did. And I will tell you the first year was very challenging. So let's talk about the first year, but before that, let's talk about the struggle of leaving family and friends in New York. What was that experience like? It was really hard. I think that it, that was my first taste of when God calls you to do something. Because sometimes we think, oh, he's going to call me to do something real. I want to do this, you know, but that's not always the case. Sometimes he calls you to do something that takes you completely out of your comfort zone and takes you completely out of really what you thought your life was going to look like. I thought I'd always live in New York and it was really hard for me. I lived right across the street from um, like my best friend. My, my parents lived on the same block. It was really for the kids, it was very idyllic childhood. They all played together. You know, we all kind of shared life together. If they weren't at my house, they were eating over the neighbor's house. It was really a wonderful childhood. So it was hard to say goodbye to that. And it was hard for me to say goodbye to my church family and all of my friends and family. But I remember thinking, God, I don't know if I, if I want to do this. And he said, Kelly, the choice is yours. And he led me to a scripture that said, but he who leaves houses and land and family for my sake, that I will give it back to you in this life. And so God is so amazing that he never forces us to do anything, but it's always our choice. But I have learned enough to know that you can trust him even when it doesn't make sense. And even when it's not exactly what you think you want to do, because he knows, I, I, at least for me, I'm like, Lord, that father knows best. You know, you created me. You know what's best for me. You know what I need to grow to the next place. You know what's going to help me become the woman that you have created me to be. So while I don't understand, and I don't really like it either, I'm willing to trust you with the path that's best for me. Okay, now we're going into the move, the first move, and you said it was challenging. So how did it affect you, your marriage, your kids? Well, the marriage was really challenging, you know, had nothing to do with the move. I kind of got married. I was a single mom and, it, you know, it just kind of, I was tired of being a single mom. I was tired of being alone. And so I made a choice that definitely was not the best choice for my life or for my daughter. But you kind of make your choice and then you try to make it work. So we moved out. The marriage was already broken. My children at the time were 13, seven and five, and they were going to a school. It wasn't Osceola. My two little ones, they were definitely teased for the color of their skin. They were teased for the texture of their hair. My daughter was struggling as well. And I was up at the school several times a week trying to you know, speak to the principal, speak to the teachers, trying to get them to do, listen, my child is being teased. Nothing was done. And I remember, Marcy, if I tell you this, you are not going to believe this, but I, I'll have to say it. My daughter at the time was going to Grissom Middle School. And she was, I think at the time then, I mean, they were probably only about four or five children of color. And I mean, all color, like Latino, you know, um, it, only about five of them. And something happened at the school one day and they called me at work and said, we need you to come here. So what happened? So then my daughter was called the N-word. And when I got there, they said, listen, your daughter's getting detention. I said, so my daughter was called the N-word. So why is my daughter getting detention? Well, she responded by calling the other girl a, a B. 
And I said, okay, well, you know, I don't teach my children to do that, but I can understand why she would respond that way. And I said, okay, so if my daughter's getting detention, what is the other student getting? Well, we can't divulge that information, okay? So what does this detention look like? I'm telling you, the detention was that my daughter had to clean the cafeteria after lunch. Are you serious? I'm not kidding. I, um, I, I have never in my life heard of anything like that. So I was like, L listen, are you trying to tell me that my black daughter was called an N-word and now you want her to clean the cafeteria? Yes, that's what is, okay. And you know, I was just like, okay, I'm gonna tell you right now, my daughter is not going to do that. You are not going to humiliate her. And I said, and I will get every news station down here and I want you to tell them <laughs> what you're doing and why. And I said, uh, let, let, let's do that, okay. And then they said, well, ma'am, we won't do it this time. I said, no, 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 you won't do it anytime. You need to address the racism that's in your school. Exactly. Because yes, I don't raise my children to respond in that way, but you have, let's take care of what needs to take care of, address what really is the issue at hand. And you know, they, they said that they would, but I will tell you for, for you know, those first couple of years, it was, it was very challenging because it was also a time, this was almost 20 years ago, there wasn't that much diversity in South Bend compared to the way it is now. Interesting. Wow. Okay. That was good that um, you addressed that issue. Now, you're at, let's see, broadcasting, you're at WHME, so you had some opportunities to travel. Yes. So what was your best travel experience? Because I know you shared some stories with me. Well, I, I, there were two of them. One was uh, Hawaii, mm -hmm. and that was my first time in Hawaii, and we <clears throat> did the show live from there. But my absolute favorite is that I had an opportunity to go to Israel three times. And the first time I went, I actually got baptized in the Jordan River. That's amazing. And for me, I was there for work. And I'll be honest with you, I thought the Jordan River, okay. I was kind of like, you know, well, you go to New York, you ride the subway, go see the Statue of Liberty, you go to Chicago, you do these things. So my mind was, so I'm here for work. Okay, fine, I'll get baptized in the Jordan River. You know, child, I'll do that. And I just remember, you know, going there. And again, this was my first time, but I also had only been on the job for uh, maybe two months. So I was also so worried, like, am I gonna do a good job for them? And so my, my producer at the time said, Kelly, I know you're concerned about doing a good job, but I don't want you to miss the spiritual opportunity that God has given you. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I understand, I understand. And I remember going in the Jordan River and I just thought, okay, let's baptize me. And then they dipped me in the water. And when I got up, I could not stop crying. And I just like, it was almost like the spirit of God just flooded my soul. And it was such a cool thing to watch too, because everyone that gets baptized in the Jordan River is all, everyone's dressed in white. And I just remember being on the banks of the river and just on my knees. And I think I must've stayed there for a good 15, 20 minutes, just crying out to God and just, just feeling this amazing presence that it was almost like he was saying to me, Kelly, I know that this is all foreign to you. I know this is out of your comfort zone. I know you miss this, but I'm with you. 
and I will not fail you. That is awesome and amazing. That seems so surreal. I mean, it was. an amazing experience. It was. It's something now. You, you kind of sometimes have those moments in life that you'll never forget, though that was one of those moments that it, his presence was so tangible. And, and it was like he, he put his arms around me and let me know I'm, I'm with you. And I'm that is great when you can feel his presence around you as well. That's awesome. So not only did you host shows on WHME, but you also... You also hosted shows on WSBT, and you're currently hosting a show on WNIT. I did, yes. I stayed at Lassie for about eight years, and then I did some work for WSBT, and currently I'm on uh, Experience Michiana with WNIT, and they're wonderful to work with. And what's so great about the job, too, is that we get to go and experience Michiana, and I just love the growth that I've seen in this community. They're wonderful people. That, that have businesses and are doing some wonderful things in this community to bring diversity, to bring inclusion, to, to also just make this community a great place to live. And, and so I love being a part of this community and I love my job because I get to meet the people and that's the awesome part. That is, that is, because that's what makes the community. Listen, the restaurants are great, everything is, but it's the people that make the community. And that's what I enjoy when I'm out and about as well. So let's talk about you're an adjunct professor for IUSB teaching dance. Let's talk about that experience. And then there was like a health issue. Yeah, so I was teaching, I was an adjunct professor teaching African dance and Afro jazz at Indiana University, South Bend. And then at the time then too, it was... At the same time that I kind of felt like, oh, there's no African dance here. There's no, you know, kind of West African Caribbean dance. Maybe I should start something. Maybe that's something that I should do. So at the same time when I was there teaching, I decided to start a group called Uzima. Wasn't quite sure what that was going to look like, but I thought, you know, let's just, let's just try it. And I remember trying to think, what would be a good name for this group? And I came across the word Uzima, and it's Swahili. And I found out that there's no word for dance necessarily in Swahili because it, it was no way to describe it. So the best way to describe it was to say Uzima, which stands for a celebration of, of wholeness, health, and life. Nice. I like that. So I was teaching the African dance class. And then at the same time, I was we were building up Uzima and seeing what would that look like to be able to serve in the community as a, as a dance group. So as I was doing that, I remember starting to feel a lot of pain in my left leg. And I thought, well, you know, you're just not as young as you used to be. You know, you're getting up there. So that's probably part of it. But it was getting worse. And they said to me, my doctor said, well, you're going to need a hip replacement. And I thought, well, you know, that's probably true. I danced a lot. Um, in New York, I also ran a lot of races, you know, some half marathons, 10Ks. So, you know, you're probably right. I do need it. And this way I can get better. So let's get the surgery done. So we do the surgery and I was fine for a little bit. But then after about three weeks into it, I started to have more pain and I just wasn't healing well. And I remember thinking, okay, you know, did they do something wrong? But they said everything was fine. They put me on some steroids. And then about two weeks after that, I could not move and I could not walk. And I called my doctor and I said, listen, something is really wrong. And they said, okay, why don't you come in tomorrow? So that morning when I woke up before I went, I remember I felt like God woke me up. 
and it was about five o'clock in the morning. I was in a lot of pain and I was taking tons of ibuprofen, nothing was working. And I felt like God said, I want you to read Psalm 18. And I thought, I'm in pain, Jesus. <laughs> can, you, can you leave me alone? <laughs> okay, you know, I'm in pain. I don't feel like reading nothing at five o'clock in the morning, please. But I still felt like this, get up and read it. So I got up and I, and I read it. And it's a beautiful Psalm, but what really caught my attention was where it says, the grave tried to reach out to me, the cords of death tried to entangle me, but then I cried unto my Lord and he heard my cry and he came down to rescue me. So that was standing out to me. And I thought that, okay, well, that's okay. All right, well, all right, Lord, I read the Psalm. I'm going back to sleep till I have to get up. And then I get up and getting ready to go to the doctor. And my daily devotional that day was Psalm 18. So I kind of thought, okay, you know, God, what am I missing? What am I not catching? What are you trying to say to me? I get to the doctor and I just remember it was so excruciatingly painful to even get ready because anytime I moved my leg, even one little inch, I mean, the pain was in so intense. I've never had a pain like that before. So I was going to the car with crutches, get to the doctor's office and they take an x-ray and then the doctor comes running in and he says, I have to send you to the emergency room. And I thought, well, why not? Why don't you just, you know, tell me what we're going to do to fix this? Because I'm teaching dance. I have to get back to it. And he said, well, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think it's something, something's really wrong. And I was like, well, something like what? And he said, I think it's cancer. And I thought, okay, this man don't know what he's talking about, but fine. Let me go to the ER so they can clear this up and give me whatever I need to make this feel better. So I get to the ER and they run some tests. And at the time they weren't able to tell me exactly that it was definitively cancer because they had more tests to run. But from the x-rays and from the CAT scan and the MRI, they could see that the margins on the, where my bone were, that it, there was a tumor there. And it, the margins on it, they could tell that it was a cancer. And so I was in the hospital for about a week and they were running tests to see because bone cancer is very rare and it was in my bone. I'm sorry, I need to go back and like just say that, but it was in kind of in my left sacrum where the, the tumor was growing and it's very rare. So they knew that it came from a source and they needed to find out where the source of the cancer was coming from. So eventually they found it and I was shocked when they told me that it was lung cancer. Really? In your lung cancer. Well, it, so what ended up happening is that the, the tumor, I had a tumor in my left lung, but then it already metastasized. Oh, and yeah. so it metastasized into my bone. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, as it giving me all this information, it was so surreal and it was hard to even hear what was happening. And at the time I'm thinking, God, you, you cannot let this happen to me. And I'm remembering Psalm 18, and then they're starting to say, we're setting up your chemo, and, and everything is coming at me. And um, I just thought, you know what? If it's not stage four, I can have faith. As long as, because stage four, I just can't deal with stage four. And I remember telling the doctors, please don't tell me what stage it is. And one of the other doctors came in and said to me, well, you know, it is stage four. And I thought, oh, my God. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this one. You know, because usually with stage four, I mean, that's the that's the last one. That's the final stage. So it, it was it was really, really hard. And I think what was really hard for me, too, was to, try, you know, to have to tell my kids. Exactly. I can imagine. Yes. So obviously you're still here. So yes. cancer free for how long? 
So I am not cancer free. So what they say is with stage four, you can't be cured. And, and, and from a medical standpoint, that is true. Okay. So right now I am on a, a daily pill. It's a very low dose that keeps the cancer from spreading. And I'm grateful for it. You know, I, I do believe that it's something that God has provided for me. But I also believe that one day that I will not have to take anything. And so I always say, I, I, you're right, I can't be cured at this point but it doesn't mean I can't be healed. Exactly. And God has brought me a long way from being able to not walk, to not be able to dance, to be able to you know, dance again, maybe not the way I did before, but I'm able to do that. I'm able to continue being the artistic director of the Zima. I'm able to continue being a mom. I'm about to be a grandmother. I'm very excited about that. So it may not have been the path that I thought it would be, but all the same, I, I'm, I'm very grateful and I've learned a lot about what it means to walk the valley of the shadow of death and to know that even in that, like God is still with you. And, you know, even in that time that he shows his favor upon those he loves. Most definitely. Yes, God is amazing. He is an awesome God. So Uzima has performed. Where have they performed in this area? So we have performed in several places. We performed at the Century Center. We performed at Artbeat. We performed for um, South Bend Schools Corporation. But one of our, oh, and of course at, at Indiana University South Bend, but we've also um, have performed at Notre Dame. Nice. What they call their performing, um, presenting series. And so we performed at the, the Bartolo Performing Arts Center. And that was a wonderful experience. And, and, I, and I also want to say I, I'm very grateful to Notre Dame because we are not a, a dance company that's from New York or a dance company that's from California. We are a local dance company. And we're not even professional dancers. I mean, these are people that love God and want to express their love for God and their love for people and for their community through the dance experience. Nice. And, you know, not just the dance, but the unique perspective of being a person of color. Mm -hmm. The experiences that we have gone through as people of color, the, the drums, you know, the, the, the spirituals, those things that are an important part of who we are, the important part of our culture, of our makeup. It's like in our DNA. Right, that, yes, exactly. That we get to do that. And that Notre Dame is, you know, just sees that, you know, let's let's give them a platform. And that's good that Notre mm -hmm. Dame is doing that and allowing you to be seen. Yeah, no. And, and we are very grateful for that. And, and more to be seen. But, I, you know, we consider what we do almost like we are hoping to minister to give what we say Ozima is about, which is a celebration of wholeness, health, and life. And what does that look like as a people? And what does it look like as a community to really learn how to live with each other in a way that we don't tolerate each other, but we actually celebrate each other? And what does a life that's whole and a life that is healthy and a life that is abundant, what does that really look like for us as families, as an individual, and as a community as well? So tell us, Kelly, what's next for you? Well, right now, we just finished the concert with Dr. Marvin Curtis and the Community Foundation. That was a wonderful time. It was great. There was a wonderful crowd out there. And that was the first time Uzima has performed since 2019 okay. because of the pandemic. So what's next for us is we are going to be on the presenting series 
at the Bartolo Performing Arts Center. But I, I'm really looking forward to it, Marcy, because I, I feel that part of the reason why we're, we're going to be there, I feel like we really do have a message for the community in this time and season that we're in. We're not only going to have the dancers, but we're going to have a, a choir. Nice. And we're going to have a live band as well. And I do believe that we have a message that's important for the times that we're in. I know the quote that we're going to focus on, the quote from Dr. King that says, if we don't learn to live as brothers, we are going to perish as fools. Right. And I think that that is a message for the times that we're in and that really as a community, we have to kind of draw our attention to that and, and how we're going to intentionally begin to live as brothers and sisters. So tell me, what has been your biggest aha moment? Oh my goodness, Marcy, <laughs> that's a great question. I think one of my biggest aha moments was when I had the courage to walk away from a marriage that wasn't healthy for me. And I say that because part of my struggle was, is that I really try to live my life in a way that, that I feel like I'm honoring God. And sometimes we can, and, and as people and as women, we can get a little bit religious with, with, with the way we kind of approach things. And so my thing was, look, this marriage is not good. It, it, it's abusive for everyone. It was just not a good situation. But God, you said marriage is, is so important. I, I can't leave. If I leave, I'm going to... God's going to be mad at me. God's going to, you know, he's not going to be with me anymore. And in many respects, no offense to churches, but many times they don't know how to walk women or families that are in abusive situations. This is not like he's not picking up his socks. You know, oh, she didn't cook. No, we're dealing with some, some very um, abusive situations for the children, for, for all of us. And many times churches don't necessarily know how to walk families through that. I would agree, yeah. And so I, I went to a church one day and I said to the pastor, I need to talk to you, the pastor's wife. And we met and she said to me, you know, God gets no honor for abuse. And that's not what he desires for his, whether you're a man or a woman, that's not what he desires for your children, for his children. And she really helped me see the truth of that I don't need to stay. And if I do leave, I'm not dishonoring God. I'm not dishonoring my family. I'm making the best decision for a healthy Kelly and yes, healthy children. Most definitely. And so it was a big aha moment. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Yes, totally understand. And there's a lot of women out there. I'm glad you shared that because I'm sure there's a lot of women in that situation and this needs to be heard. So, um, so tell me, Kelly, what's non-negotiable for you? Non-negotiable for me, and I hope this to be true, is my relationship with God. That's just like a, that, that, that you know what? Come hell, come cancer, come this, come that. That's a non-negotiable for me. I don't know how I could live my life without knowing that, that you know, God is with me and that he's for me. And, and so that's a non-negotiable for me. Very good. So you discussed that you've been through a lot of struggles, you know, health issues, discrimination. So what drives you to keep going when it gets really tough? What drives me is, first of all, my family. I mean, they're, I, you know, my children are amazing. I have a wonderful husband who is behind me in everything I do. But what, what really drives me is that I believe that every person, and we're talking to women now, I believe every woman 
has been created to fulfill a purpose in the earth. Whatever that is, it's different for everyone. And I believe that if the woman, if we don't stand up and really take ownership of what we're called here to do, it just won't get done. Or it won't get done as well as you could have done it. So that's what keeps me going, is that I want to fulfill what I'm here to do, whatever that may be. And, and I want to do it to the best of my ability. Great. Awesome. So who has been your greatest inspiration? Well, my greatest inspiration, I mean, again, like I said, I just got married, remarried, and my husband is absolutely wonderful and inspires me greatly. But I would say overall, especially through the years, my children. I want to tell you that when I was diagnosed with cancer, my children, you know, they came together and they they really took care of me. It was a time I was going through the divorce, I was going through the cancer, and my oldest daughter in New York was working. And she said, Mom, don't you worry, I will be there. And she left her job and she came and she stayed with me for four months when I went through chemo and, and radiation. And I myself was just, there were times where I thought, I don't know if I'm gonna be here. It's like, I don't know if I'm gonna see my grandchildren. I don't know if, I, I was diagnosed in October, I started chemo in November. I don't know if I'm gonna be here. And my daughter, searched the Bible and she wrote down all these scriptures about healing and life. And she put them in um, frames. And so all around my room, the scriptures of, of life that I would wake up and I, they were, I would read them and she would read them to me before I would go to bed. My other daughter, they, they cooked for me. Every chemo that I had, my children were there. My daughter was in school at the time. She had her doing her homework on the on the bed while, while I was there. And I just am amazed that, that they were as strong as they were at a time where I, I wasn't exactly. And you needed that. that and I needed awesome. that. And so they, they are my inspiration. They really are. Well, kudos to your kids. That's awesome and amazing. Now, if you were to write a book about yourself, what would you title it and why? Mm, that's a that's another really good question. I don't know. I think two things come to mind. So I, if I can have two titles, just <laughs> I think one of them would be I am my father's daughter. Okay. And you know, it's it's because I again I feel that my connection to God makes me who I am, and that you know that I am I am who he who he says I am. And I know people say that a lot, but. But that really resonates with me. And it, it, it keeps me sometimes listening to that negative internal dialogue that we can sometimes have in our minds. So to know that, that I am my father's daughter, I have his DNA. He said that I'm the head and not the tail. I'm the head and not the tail. I don't care what anybody says. You all, you know, you all can say whatever. You, I'm the head and not the tail. If he says I can do all things, then I can do all things. So that would be one title. And the other would probably be like something out of the shadow into the light. Because much of my life, there were, there were a lot of shadows, but God has brought me into the light. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but I'm in a place where I know in whom I believe in. Mm -hmm. And okay, things are going to come, things are going to go. I'm going to have some good days, some bad days, some this. But, you know, I, I'm still living in the light. Most definitely. Yes, you are. Now tell me, what is your definition of a boss? Oh boy, wow. Well, I think a boss woman, a boss is someone, again, who is 
passionate about her purpose and intentional about wanting to live that out. But then she doesn't put her purpose over people, that she always knows that people come first and that when you are out to live your, your, your purpose, that it's never about you. It's about what you're being able to do for other people. It's almost kind of having that servant's heart. So it's not about, well, I'm getting my titles and I'm a dude and, you're, and they, they're going to know my name and I'm going to know it's you're here to be an answer to a problem. Exactly. And so I think it's so important to do that, to know that I'm fulfilling my purpose, but it's not about me. It's, it's, it's about being able to be that answer. It's about being able to to be that solution to what is needed in my community or, or wherever you go. To be of service. To, to be, be of service. service. I like that, yes. Okay, so Kelly, any last remarks? Well, you know what? I want to say this because it was so funny. My girlfriends and I were talking a couple of days ago about, you know, because I am, I am 57 and I always thought, oh my God, I'm never going to tell people my real age. I never wanted people to know my real age. But I think at this time in my life, I am loving growing older. And I never thought I would say that. I almost had a fear of growing old. But there's something that that's, I'm starting to, those places in me that I needed other people to fill. I don't need that so much anymore. And those places that I kind of was struggling with the, you know, the lies, I'm starting to see not the lie, but understand the truth. And I also understand, especially with going through cancer and with still walking through it, that age is a gift. Yes. And not everybody is given that gift. Exactly. So I'm looking forward to that gift and I'm looking forward to growing old. Right. Every day we wake up is a blessing. Yes, yes it indeed. Is. Yes. So how can someone contact you? Well, they can contact me. Um, my email is uzima, kn at gmail.com. And you can also find um, me on Facebook, Uzima Drum and Dance. And we're also on Instagram as well. So look forward to hearing from everybody and Marcia, I just also want to thank you for being here. You're welcome. And I want to thank you for taking the time out to share your journey with me and our listeners. If you want more information, you can go to our website at www.bossup.com. You can email me at womenwhobossup at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook at Women Who Boss Up. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Until next time.